Okay, now that we're recording, I do want yeah. to say that it feels remarkable to have Sugi not with us today. Mm-hmm. I feel like some primal part of me is mm-hmm. is about to come out or be unleashed, like some areas of my personality that I haven't been able to wow. be in touch with during wow. recording. Wow. Now that the paternal uh, law has, has left the building, I'm, I'm feeling very feisty, a little mischievous. Uh, you know, we'll see how I do. But right now, I, I, I think everything's on the table. Uh, you know, if you want me to say outrageous things, uh, then wow. now's your chance. So, so <laughs> Sagi really keeps you in line? I think so. I'm afraid of stepping out of Sagi's line. <laughs> I can't help it. Yeah, Wait, I've got you, a Sagi-shaped hole. I'm stepping out of his line, I guess. I don't know what that means. I, I like all of his, his words are getting jumbled up. I'm just so anxious. <laughs> but he um, will listen to this when when he returns, you know. So uh, I, I better watch what I say. Not he will not listen to this. <laughs> I don't know why you think that, Andrew. There was no well, way he would because he, he would, would happily <laughs> trade any of us for a, a woman to join our ranks in, in our place. That is true. You know? So he might be curious. Uh, it to, is to true. All right, you guys, uh, I, I want to welcome everyone <laughs> uh, to the Five Star Tossers. Um, we have a, a, an exciting uh, show today that uh, might be scatterbrained in a, in, or uh, <laughs> ideally uh, it'll be very uh, on topic. Um, uh, specifically, we want to talk about uh, sex today uh, in relation to, to Zoomers. Uh, and we'll, we'll discuss uh, a little bit more <laughs> about what we mean by that. Um, but we have a little bit of a different makeup in, in our crew today. So I, I want to like say, talk about that before we begin. Uh, so uh, Sagi is, is sadly not, not here with us, um, but he sends us and, and uh, all of our listener. Uh, I'm sticking to his fantasy that there's only one listener. Uh, all of our listener, uh, he, he sends his, his, his best. Um, and we have a, a new uh, participant today, uh, Alicia, uh, uh, another dear friend. We have, we have so many. Um, and, um, Alicia, would you, would you like to say hello uh, to, the, to the people out there? Sure. Hi, everybody, um, or one person listening. Thank you for listening. I'm very excited to be here. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. Okay. Yeah. And Alicia's uh, qualifications are she's she's brilliant and and she really uh, she wrote a whole dissertation basically about about this topic, if, if I believe. Uh, <laughs> at at least speaking. a chapter. At least a chapter. At least a whole chapter. Well, yes, more than than we can say about, about this. Um, uh, okay. Uh, and uh, let's let's also say hello to Jack. Hey everyone, resident kind of Zoomer. You know, Alicia may have uh, written about this, but I've lived it. <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, I'm just gonna try to say this as as quickly as possible. But I I, I dated a Zoomer, 
Um, so I have my own living it too that I'm, I'm working through in this uh, podcast. So, and uh, Andrew, uh, yes, n- no Hello. relation to any of this stuff, right? You've never dated a Zoomer. <laughs> You're not never. a Zoomer. You've never written about this stuff. <laughs> but I do interact with Zoomers uh, as a core component of my job. Okay. So I, I have some insight as to how yeah. they're feeling about this. I was able to pull them and to survey them about some of uh, some of this stuff in a completely professional and above board kind of way. So, you know, the discussion we had was great. I'll be able to relay a bit of what above board. About. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, okay, let, let's briefly just describe what we want to talk about. I mean, one, one thing is like there was a, a news article published recently in the New York Times, but I feel like that article has been published like once every five months in the New York Times, uh, which is this fear like statistical evidence shows that the Zoomers, Gen Z, um, are not having sex uh, at a rate that the older generation finds healthy for them. (laughs) Um, uh, And so there's this weird kind of like inversion where the older generation feels like the younger generation is more prudish than they were. Um, So, okay, that's that's like the first thing that that we're talking about. the next thing is, and maybe Andrew, you could say a little bit more about this, but there, there are some signs in terms of like the social media discourses that go on, um, like in, on Twitter, for example, uh, that there is a kind of complaint made by the Zoomer people out there uh, that uh, they are bombarded by far too much sex, um, the access to porn is almost not even just an access. It's like an infestation that they're coerced to engage with. They can't avoid it. And this even includes like Hollywood movies and sex scenes in Hollywood movies that somehow you're trying to watch a movie and then all of a sudden you're forced to watch sex. And that this is kind of a violation, a non-consensual engagement with the sex act. Uh, So those are the two uh, things that, that, that we're kind of, speaking around is that is that true andrew yes i i think that's a great synopsis of of the problems of the day (laughs) okay okay wonderful um you know we always try to throw out our uh stars the stars that we're going to talk about um you know we're never going to get away from pervs are us um and if we're talking about desire (laughs) we're going to be talking about psychoanalysis um of course i don't know anything about desire because my my friend who's not here so many friends. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, she won't tell me what desire is, and she knows, and she won't tell me. <laughs> so the other is always doing it better and yeah. having more fun than you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay. Anyway, so we'll, we'll but we're going to talk about psychoanalysis because we are talking about desire and also frustration with desire and um, control over one's desire. I think that that's something that we need to talk about is the, is the way that, you know, if we're, if we're not saying that all zoomers believe this, there is a, a, you know, um, a a group of them that for whatever reason seems to imagine a kind of space of innocence that they have, um, which is being abused and, coerced into a sexuality that they have not consented to have. Um, And I think one of the reasons why we're going to talk about psychoanalysis is because 
uh, everything in psychoanalysis affirms <laughs> that you cannot control <laughs> um, your entrance into sexuality and sex. Uh, and it, it is a, a violation on a certain level. Um, but to draw the boundary at something so specific as like a visual image, it, 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 you know, or, or kind of cultural uh, orientation towards sexuality uh, would seem to sort of completely like scotomize and erase any like notion of the, the, the violation and, and, and pen, you know, penetrative <laughs> boundary breaking forces of sex. So, okay. That, that, that's, you know, psychoanalysis. Um, I think there's a, what would Jesus do here? Because there's a bunch of moralizing um, people who have take a lot of pleasure in their m morality. And I think I want to, in, in relation to some things Alicia has been talking about, think about how um, this moralism is its own kind of desire and 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 and, and pleasure and jouissance. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, and Alicia, I think will help us uh, work with that. There is, of course, like questions kind of like what we did um, with the incel. But, I, you know, because we're talking about like visual representations of sex. So we're talking about the supplement. Uh, we're talking about maybe a prosthetic version of sexuality that's also being treated as, uh, you know, co coercive and non-consensual. Uh, so we're, the il vaut mieux Lyotard que je mets, the, 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 the post-structural uh, prosthetic supplementary uh, star. I, I'm just laying the groundwork there. Does anyone else want to add maybe topics they want to talk about or a star that maybe wasn't mentioned that maybe could be mentioned? I guess I would like to talk about, this is more of a, a, a the mechanism of the thing, but the kind of online increased kind of uh, use of these online sites, uh, you know, groups, which create a kind of in-group language or at least a way of kind of communicating with one another that does not resonate with people who don't who who aren't in the group, who aren't a part of the same conversations, right? And so I think essentially a lot of people um, then who are in the kind of niche circles that talk about um, radical politics or whatever they want to talk about, then their only method or way of talking about these things are, are directly online. So there's no kind of interpersonal communication a lot of things are anonymous or people use, you know, alternative identities. And so I think if you spend most of your day doing that, it, it, it does preclude your um, ability to, to meet people in person or have sex or um, date. You're talking about a kind of like isolating feedback loop that uh, various cultures that it seems like also like not just various cultures, but like what they have in common might be a kind of like a uh, thread of moralism that the, the group in itself believes in. So whether it's radical political uh, feedback loop or it's an incel feedback loop, like it has the same structure of kind of like moralizing uh, uh, like value system, but also a, I guess you're also saying that it creates its own vocabulary in order to sort of like isolate the group together. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's like this, there's different levels of cultural engagement. And I think um, 
a lot of people who are who are in the niche groups um, view others as as less than. Okay. They derive, okay. in other words, they derive their self satisfaction and pleasure not from romance and and um, interpersonal communication, but through uh, you know talking about these very niche uh, niche topics in a in a moralizing um, kind of shared in, in a moralizing shared lexicon. Cool. Yeah, and I think we'll incorporate that because um, with this notion that somehow the the desire for sex is replaced by yeah the 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 haranguing of culture uh on, on a certain level uh andrew you are officially free <laughs> free <laughs> of the handsome, the handsome daddy figure who's haunted oh, you no. the- <laughs> i i miss you Suki. i pray for your return um but yes i i like that jack will be our our zoomer native informant and i can step into the role of the homosexual informant uh and and because what what this what these conversations are making me think about right is the um the right wing panic around grooming children drag queens reading to children at libraries and this kind of like complimentary sex panic that's happening on the other side of things, because it, 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 in some way, the discourse seems to be a repetition of that moment in the seventies and eighties when, uh, like radical feminism was becoming a strange bedfellow to, you know, anti-pornography Christian, you know, reactionaries who were, uh, you know, dead set on redefining the culture in this way. And, you know, so there's the appearance that that, potentially might be going on like as as moralism is forming this bridge between very radically distinct uh, political camps but i'm also kind of uh, you know thinking along with jack here that like this discourse is in some sense designed to just infuriate everybody and i'm very suspicious of its legitimacy and this is why of course so i'll, I'll bring up how my my uh my <laughs> my my zoomers that i am in contact with you know that they you know had some uh yeah very strong ideas about how they were being instrumentalized in this particular culture war and how they found it like odious and 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 ridiculous in a lot of ways um but so i'm i'm I, i'm thinking about you know what would jesus do certainly in terms of resentment and um you know the, the this new sort of this transvaluation that's happening around sex and sexual values and in it's to link it back to queerness and homosexuality there's this remarkable book called melancholia and moralism written by a, a queer theorist and activist named douglas crimp who talks about uh the rise of the right-wing gay reactionary as an effect of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in which, you know, these n- new figureheads, like especially Andrew Sullivan, whom I detest more than anything in this world, maybe, <laughs> that's a strong claim, but, um, you know, that that this, um, the, the failure to confront the horrifying loss of, of uh, and to really mourn properly on a national level, on a spiritual, personal level, the the genocide of, of so many homosexual people um, produced this sort of melancholic effect of like super ultra condemning like the body for its its desire to have sex, 
to be sexually promiscuous and all like kind of like pathologizing, right? The gay man's body by saying like your criminal sinful lifestyle has led to the death of so many people. Why couldn't you have just kept it in your pants? This sort of thing. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of vibe with this current sex panic moment and think about how it resonates you know, with, with past sex panics and what they might all seem to have in common. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> there also is this notion, because I, I was reading something from British Vogue. It, it basically was trying to interview a bunch of Zoomers to see if it was true that they're having less sex or that they're prudish about sex. And there was absolutely no evidence that that is, is true. <laughs> I, I guess when I think about why the Zoomers might be having a little bit less sex, it, it does seem like you could make a very simple observation, which is that because they're able to watch porn um, and jerk off to porn, uh, there's a little bit less of a, a desperate need to go out and meet someone but also at the same time, and I think this is where Alicia can really help us. If you can like get some satisfaction in this safer, more controlled space, the the gesticulations and trials and tribulations that uh, are necessary to meet up with someone <laughs> and uh, you know find a consensual sexual relationship with another person uh, maybe start to seem a little bit daunting and you kind of make a compromise within yourself and say, well, I can just get off tonight. <laughs> um, and I mean, if, if there's any <laughs> theory that I would throw out about why this is happening, it would be something along those lines. Um, but Alisa, do you, do you want to say a little bit also like yeah. introduce your notion of like sexless sex, which I yeah. think is important for this? Yeah. Yeah. I thought the way that Andrew sort of couched his perspective and, and Jack also, I think it'd be good for me to do that too, um, because you know I've I've written on rape, and so I've really um, analyzed what I'm calling the rape discourse, uh, starting from um, radical feminists in New York in the early '70s up until the Me Too movement. Um, so I, I really see this as an offshoot of that. Um, I see this sort of um, demand for a safe space uh, for sex as an effect of this kind of discourse. But of course, what happens there is that the demand basically is just a demand for no sex at all. <laughs> so um, there is no such thing as, you know, quote unquote, safe sex. So I really want to get into this conversation of consent, actually, because I think that just intrinsically sexuality isn't something that um, it's something where consent continues to be negotiated throughout the experience. It's not something that you can just sort of start out with a, you know, signing a contract of, cons uh, you know, of um, consent and then engage in, and it's just like a completely safe sphere. So that aspect of sexuality, that, that aspect that makes sexuality really well, what it is, which is sex, um, is, is, is really want, like, it sounds like people really want to just take that out of sex. So I'm really, uh, Alicia, mm -hmm. I, I jump in non-consensually a lot on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
<laughs> Please forgive me. <laughs> um, so, uh, but uh, so one thing that I find interesting about what you're saying here is that, and it, it seems like a helpful way to think about how there's no safe place for sex is that if if we like imagine the Zoomers as a group of people who have developed, a, and I think obviously we're just imagining here a, a, a kind of moralism about the sex act and rape culture and the non-consensual like hetero like heteronormativity i think there is like a return to radical feminism like a la andrea dworkin like in the air today um I'll, I'll read some of her later but like this this sense that sex for women is, in a heteronormative space is just absolutely violent and, and and is rape and i think that that moralism then is trying not to have sex, is trying to pull away from sex, and then finds even the violence of sex in the images that are disseminated. <laughs> you know, like, like th so that any sense of sexuality itself becomes a violation. Uh, and, and I think that that's a helpful way to think about, like, the impossibility of this safe sex. And I guess also, I guess the contradiction in terms of, like, the sexless sex because it does feel like if, if this moralism like takes itself to its extreme, you know, let's just imagine that there's no sex being had with living humans. Then there's no sex that can be distributed um, like visually. But then there are always confrontations and um, interactions with the other i mean like that that is sexual on, yeah, on the psychoanalytic right, right. you know so so we're moving towards a, a kind of like this sealed case i don't know is like bubble boy kind of like orientation towards the other uh where you can just live in like a pure state of of what i mean you know uh, like those are people who aren't completely steeped in psychoanalysis like sexuality is like language <laughs> sexuality <Yeah. laughs> there's there's no point in which you can cut it out of of your reality and and so i i do think that like it is a good place to think about this like moral like safe haven and purity that that is trying to sort of clarify a space of of utter impossibility when when you think about this argument that like Hollywood cinema, like should stop, you know, forcing us to watch sex scenes in the middle of like, like a movie. Right. Um, well, and what's interesting about this is that that's obviously the fantasy, right? The fantasy that there is such a thing as an, a space of innocence that is being infringed upon. But what's interesting sort of uh, phenomenologically is that what's really happening is not the apps. Well, I, I think I would agree with, I think Jakey might've said this, that like, there is, isn't, it's not so much that what the result is, is that there's an absence of sex. Is that, is that what, what the result is, is that there's like much more um, a, a sense that there's like transgressive sex, that there's more rape, right? That there's more um, violence in sex all of a sudden than there was before in some sort of mythical time period, right? And so what I think is, is an offshoot of this, um, uh, of this discourse is a sort of creating uh, the ramification of uh, a per, uh, um, of transgression, right? Like the, the ultimately, the demand is for transgression 
in 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 like a phenomenological way as opposed to like a, in a uh, in a phantasmatic way. Well, you're you're saying that the desire to have this moralizing boundary, it's it's ultimate like need is it it wants to create these transgressions that it then can well that that's that's what i don't understand is it is it the pleasure of creating a, a transgression that that these people are getting off on or is it that they want to create the transgression so that they they can actually you know experience the pleasure of transgressing it I, that well, I mean, so we have to think about it from two perspectives. One, we would have to be the person, like, let's say the passive, um, the person who demands, right, the, the sexual interaction, or maybe demands that there not be a sexual interaction, right? And then we have to think about the person that acquiesces, like, that is, that is like, okay, I'll give you what you're asking for, or I won't give you what you're asking for. So what it creates is a, is a, is a really interesting dynamic where, um, it, it creates a problem is what it does. It creates a situation in which now the interaction that is still going to be had ends up being a lot more violent in its nonviolence. What uh, Alicia said really resonates because of, you know, not to bring up Foucault, but in a room of psychoanalysts, right? But I, I feel Foucault is, is worth uh, thinking through here. In the, in the history of sexuality, where he talks about these spirals of power and pleasure, where like, I, you know, it's it's not so much that like the, the subject, right, is like, you know, don't contaminate me with your dirty thoughts or dirty ideas about my body or my pleasure. It's very much inviting that sense of a, of, of a boundary violation. What he says here, it's like uh, the pleasure that comes of exercising a power that questions, monitors, watches, spies, searches out, palpates, brings to light. And on the other hand, the pleasure that kindles at having to evade this power, flee from it, fool it, or travesty mm. it. The power that lets itself be invaded by the pleasure it is pursuing and opposite it, power asserting itself and the pleasure of showing off, scandalizing or resisting. Capture and seduction, confrontation and mutual reinforcement, parents and children, adults and adolescents, educator and students, doctors and patients, a psychiatrist with this hysteric and his perverts, all have played this game continually, continually since the 19th century. These attractions, these invasions, these circular incitements have traced around bodies and sexes, not boundaries not to be crossed, but perpetual spirals of power and pleasure. Mm, hey, very nice. Foucault mm -hmm. is great here, you know, like yeah. I, I really, um, I, I'm, I'm struck by the, the resonances that Elise is, is, is introducing here. I, I, I'm of the same mind here, I think. Andrew, well, is that, sorry, I just, because like, I feel like he also has, and it's helpful here because he has the opposite framing as well, which is it, the one, the, this, the quotation you just pointed out is that at the moment where you're trying to inhibit desire or draw a boundary where desire should stop. There's a, a pleasure and and a, and a jouissance that you still are, are chasing after. Like, I mean, yes. am, am I interpreting that correct? Okay, because right. he, he also has the opposite, which and this is what I was reading in in Gila Ashtor's uh, Homo Psyche, um, which is about queer theory and erotophobia. Which is he has that repressive hypothesis, which is at the moment that you move in the other direction where you claim that everything has been repressed, that sex has been repressed, and we need to break boundaries, you also reintroduce new repressions. Like, uh, like so it's, it's kind of like on the other side as well. 
So both when you're trying to like rein in desire, you are, you know, experiencing desire. And then when you're trying to liberate desire, you also create new boundary lines and new repressions. So I think he speaks on, on both sides. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I think that sense is there in the quote. And, you know, the, the way I, my gloss on it is like sex will always defeat any attempt to pastoralize it or to contain it because it will always eroticize the very mechanism by which it is attempting to be snuffed out or prohibited. Mm-hmm. So you, you just keep getting off more on the, on the no and the, and the prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Is, would you say yeah. that because there's always a no there in, in, in relation to sex? Is that... Yeah, I mean, well, that would be Lacan, I, I, I guess, right? And and so, two for Foucault, perhaps. So I, I might be just now talking completely out of my ass. <laughs> no, I want to yeah. know for Andrew. I want to know for you. For you, is there always a yes, no there? Yes, of course, <laughs> yes. of course. There's always a field of of, of negated yeah. pleasures and desires yeah. that you cannot do with your partner, and you're always kind of constantly renegotiating what's possible there, right? Yeah, uh, if you're lucky. If you're like, <laughs> well, no, maybe the negotiation is not even happening consciously or willingly. It's just happening, yeah, right? Regardless of yeah. your intentions behind it. Yeah. I think. Okay. <laughs> so, so I think that what's nice about this quote, and I, I want to sort of reflect this, if it's okay with you guys to sort of lead this in the direction of maybe doing a little bit of an, an analysis of porn, if that's okay. Um, I love this quote because it's reflected in the in the sort of structure of pornography that we've seen up until very recently. Just sort of the quotidian, you know, man comes in and, you know, has sex with all these women and now they're going to like it. Whether they like it or not, they're going to like it, right? Um, and But now we're seeing a kind of shift in that, which is, which I would describe as being the epitome of this conversation of sexless sex, um, where the there's the hidden element of sexuality inherent to the porn. Like that is the porn. The porn is that there is no transgression. Um, The fantasy is that there is no transgression, even when there is, you know, sort of like carnal relationships between men and women, or even between men and men or women and women. What I would say is just that exactly as Andrew had just stated, the same structure still is there. There is a sense in which even that mechanism is being sexualized. So the problem that I see is that the way in which it does end up sort of coming out between people in, in let's say, a sort of actual like real world interaction is that, that that ends up being a lot more violent for its like attempt at not being violent. Can you, Alicia, can you say more about that? Like, so hiding, repressing, scotomizing, making believe that the violence or the violation or the, or the no is not part of sex. How does that make it more violent when, when sex takes place? Oh, it's a, because it's a complete, um, I mean, I've said this before, but mm. it's a suspension of the other. And specifically of the other's desire. They have no space in this space for sexlessness, right? Even though they are inherently already sort of present, they have no space. And so it just creates a situation in which what is being demanded is precisely that, that there is no space for sex. But then what ends up happening is that now that there is an interaction, that ends up becoming 
the violent aspect of it, right? The denial of their own desire. I mean, if, if you could put it almost in maybe like colloquial mundane terms, it's almost like since there always is some form of violence and violation in sex, to ignore it exacerbates it, uh, to ignore it heightens its its reality. I mean, is, is, is it something like that or... Yeah, and it's not just the ignoring part of it. It's almost yeah. like the way that I'm seeing it is that there is a demand for there to be this safe space for sex. The demand is met. And when the demand is met, it means that they, the, the partner who's doing the demanding is completely shut out of that interaction, even while they're still there, right? I mean, you can't have that kind of interaction without that person being there. So um, that that's what creates this completely, um, almost, I mean, yeah, transgressive, violent situation. Can we maybe try to speak about what a safe space for sex means? <laughs> um, and then maybe talk about why it's so difficult to even describe that, but at least try to... Okay, so I'll I'll say one thing because I you know I was doing some work or some reading around queer theory, and I think that in, in this text that I'm reading, there's this word which I really like. It's, it's in the title, erotophobia. That the erotophobia that exists in queer theory, um, and I think that the basic idea right from the start, um, if I could uh, quote this unknown author, <laughs> who I have no knowledge of, of who. <laughs> <laughs> he or she is. Um, they, they talk about that sexuality's radical potential lies in its being understood as intersubjective and intrusive. Okay, that, that that that's the affirmation of sex that I think we're making in th this podcast. However, the safe notion of sex <laughs> refuses to think about sex or does not want to think about sex as intersubjective and intrusive. Okay, um, and one of the reasons that queer theory can be part, you know, you would think that queer theory is all about expanding sexual desire, about affirming sex in, in, in all forms, with all different people, with all different orientations, uh, with all sorts of toys and positions, etc. cetera. Um, but there is part of queer theory that is like this kind of, like everyone should be allowed to have the desire they want to have. There, there's a sense of like the entitlement to sex. You know, there's that famous essay, uh, which then became a book by Amiya Srinivasan, um, like called The Right to Sex. Um, and it's this notion that even in queer theory, there's become this kind of fantasy that if we actually open up our world to accepting all different orientations and all different identities, that people will be able to experience their desire with no conflict. And I think that is the, the erotophobia that's being talked about here. Um, it's this sense where like, once you claim that there's no boundaries and you just point your finger at the normalizing world, world for creating boundaries, you actually don't respect that 
sex is 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 a negotiation with boundary <laughs> like mm-hmm. and and they're there as part of what you get off on as well yeah <laughs> and, and and so this fantasy that we're just pure queer beings who whose desire is absolute and it's just you know the government and conservatism that doesn't allow us to have our good safe sex um ends up completely like losing touch with what sex is um which yeah yeah yeah. and i think that's really where the your star uh what would jesus do sort of comes in right it's just so perverse like that idea there that there can be such a sort of boundaryless non non uh, you know sex without conflict sex without um a negotiation with these boundaries basically that's just a free-for-all everybody's open to everybody right i mean talk about rape right yeah um yeah Yeah, you know i brought this up before but the in the mia Mia srinivasan book she um she talks about the incel elliot roger uh who ended up killing um like you know i guess like maybe five women at a santa barbara sorority and his you know his whole he had a manifesto he had these videos it was all about how it was such an injustice that he didn't have sex. He was supposed to have sex and no one gave him sex. And so he was going to kill all these people. And she, she talks about his entitlement to sex in, in relation to certain uh, discourses in queer theory, uh, where there's a notion that queer theory is trying to open up, you know, like body positivity um, and and reroute desire where everyone can be desired and everyone can desire everyone. <laughs> um, and and mm. so there's no boundaries anymore and everyone's having the sex that they want. And, and I mean, it, it's an interesting intervention she makes because she's like warning queer theory that <laughs> there's, there's almost an Elliot Rogers-like impulse in their affirmation of this boundaryless, moment where everyone gets the sex they want and everyone is desired in the same way. Um, and, 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 and also speaking of what would Jesus do, we can hear the resentment in that structure, right? Because it's like, well, not everyone gets to sleep with the people they want to sleep with. You know, we need to create a world where everyone is desired and, and everyone can sleep with the person they desire. I mean, you know, we're really missing Sagi here because uh, Sagi would, you know, shamelessly <laughs> affirm his 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 right to to you know a violent, uh, <laughs> very heteronormative discretion. <laughs> but <yeah. laughs> I, I'm giggling, but I'm muted. Yes. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't have to mute yourself so much, please. You're free. Andrew. <laughs> I know, but there's I, no boundaries when the here. Father, I, we desire you. <laughs> we want you. <laughs> but everyone knows the father becomes more powerful mm-hmm. in absentia. So yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gods decompose. That's uh, yeah. right. <laughs> but I have a question yeah. for Jack. If that's okay, as a as a resident Zoomer, um, I just wanted to ask you if you find like uh, any of the things we've been talking about, do you, do you find, does any of this resonate with your experience of just culturally with people your age? It's funny, right? Because I try to make the distinction between the people who are of the world, um, who kind of go do regular things that, you know, 
normal people do, like go to work and have a career and whatever. They those people, I think, are are pretty normal and average. I think it's the the small, very vocal group of people who who are the ones that resonate most with uh, they kind of um, who you're talking about. I guess today. So I guess the question would be like, um, you don't really see, you don't really identify a shift in cultural values or a, a shift in the va- the way in which people want to have sex, like in, in general. That's a good question because, and it'd be hard, for, it'd be presumptuous for me to, to kind of identify a shift when I'm not in both generations, I suppose. So, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of downstream effects from uh, from the discourses you guys are talking about, where people are much more aware of consent. People are much more. I think that's one thing that's probably changed in my generation is people maybe a bit more n- neurotic about consent um, as something that is constantly it, it's constantly being uh, or it's a constant process, right? There's a Supreme Court case in in Canada a couple years ago that I'm sure you're aware of where um, a man was accused of rape because um, his girlfriend enjoyed, I guess, being asleep or being choked into um, an unconscious state. And the Supreme Court ruled there that it was, in fact, rape because the the fundamental premise of consent is that it's retractable at any time. That was their, Mm -hmm. their logic. And I think, I think that logic like that is kind of down uh, decisions like that flow downstream where people like this is the new kind of um, rule of consent where at any given moment even if you meet a striking young woman and she wants to go to bed with you at any moment she can she can say no I'm done and I'm just I guess I'm not sure what it was like for all of you you know when you were my age can I can I can I can I riff off of that for a second here because this is something that I'm, I'm interested in what this means in relation to what we're talking about, about boundaries and violation here, because you guys remember like the Aziz Ansari, uh, like Me Too moment, right? Mm-hmm. And that was, that, that, yes. was, that was one of the moments, right, where people were like, this is like a little grayer area. And as I remember it, I, I might be like misunderstanding it, but the, the woman that he slept with said yes prior to going home like yes i'm gonna come to your house and sleep with you um but then during the act was saying no that that was how i understood it and i guess the one thing that i thought about that is that it is true (laughs) that when you're having sex i don't know it almost seems like the act of sex is a constant asking for consent like, like at every moment, you know, I, like the idea that you get consent just like at the beginning and then 20 minutes later, you're, you're still not asking for consent is, is like, is like an extreme, it, it, it's almost like a, like a legalese, like, um, mm. reduction of the human to like a contract. They said, well, you already said yes. Like now we're going forward here. So, I mean, on some level I do like affirm that consent is like constantly in question imminently the whole time you're having sex. I mean, so it is interesting what you're saying there because I guess it seems like that's what the law is saying on some level that you need to have the capacity to consent for consent to be even viable. 
it, yeah. And it, cause it is like, well, he, t- I told him prior to being knocked unconscious that I was willing to be knocked unconscious. But in the moment that you're knocked unconscious, you're not there anymore to, to consent. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the real or the real kind of interesting thing about this is that consent itself is not really sexy. I mean, it's like you say, 20 minutes later, yeah. you're still, you're like constantly asking every minute, okay, how is this? Do you like this? Do you mind if I move your leg over here? Like, you know, it's like, there's, yeah. there's a certain, well, I'm going to push wait, back but, on that. I'm pushing back, but go on, you finish. I'm pushing back. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're pushing. Well, there's a certain, um, I will, I will back you up. I actually, Thank you. <laughs> I I think, but but it's it's like I guess. But isn't sorry? Think, isn't consent on some level to to feel desired by the other? Like, isn't that sexy? I, I mean, say more about that. What do you mean? Yeah. Yes, Jake. <laughs> but but it's the it's the constant. <laughs> but but there's uh, decreasing marginal returns. I mean, it's like you you constantly ask. No. Okay. I have I have a story that I have to tell about this. Okay. Um, <laughs> Okay, I can't wait. <laughs> I was I'm just... I was on the beach once, okay? It's the only <laughs> Was Sagi the lifeguard on duty? Oh. <laughs> I think this was a, I think I've this is, I think I've heard the story. This, yeah. This is a private beach, okay? Um, uh, there were no lifeguards. Um, yeah, so we, we had no one, you know, no no big other to to care for us or to assert the law. And the big others always. No, I, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know to call you mommy or daddy in relation to you telling me that, but <laughs> I'll just call you. Mo- thank you, mommy, daddy. Okay. Um, so I was with this girl who actually was had been dating a friend of mine, and we were we were flirting with each other. And I think for whatever reason, I'm going to blame her for this this dialogue that we had but she was very precise and kind of very like scientifically minded lady and so we got to this point where we were like talking about the kissing like in the possibility of us kissing okay and she kept saying to me well at this point we've talked about it so much that it's not gonna be enjoyable <laughs> because we've kind of overridden it <laughs> to to a point where it's it's just we're not going to experience any pleasure when we do it. And I I think I said something like no because like once it happens it will feel spontaneous and and all of this bartering is is going to you know disappear. Um I think that's about the moment I went in for the move and kissed her. <laughs> <laughs> And how was it? It was just as I just as I told her it would be, <laughs> extremely pleasurable, and we we did not feel like it had been overridden. I, I guess all I'm saying, Jack, is that I don't I, like like the <laughs> Andrew. You need well. That's for you. So we please. don't know how she felt. Uh, oh, she felt the pleasure. Yeah. I mean, look, I have, I have no doubt you were putting the we riz on her. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that we need her <laughs> point of view. All right. Well, I will try to get it for the next podcast. I don't know where she yeah. is right now. Um, Give me. Yeah. I, I guess <laughs> now I have to defend. But, <laughs> I think I got like, her counter signature at the end. I'll just say that. I, I said, "See, I, wasn't I right?" And she was like, "Yes, yeah. you were right." <laughs> oh come on! Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you forced me to do that. <laughs> yeah. Can Andrew? Can you? I guess. Can Can you defend the the how the overriding could uh, you know forget forget this this young yeah. young 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 lady I was with. I was also a young man. Yeah. No. No. I mean, in 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 the sense that this style of questioning or this style of talking about before it happens. I mean, that is a very pure distillation of like there is no sexual relation. I I think right. Like you're. You're making the sex toys do the activity first before you step in and make your move, right? But I, but yeah, no, it, it seems to me also very erotic to have somebody like constantly invite the question of transgression into the the act itself with words of like, is this okay? Is that okay? I personally would find that insufferable, but I am a hysteric. So, uh, you know, it's like that, that wouldn't be the way to seduce me. But maybe for, for the obsessional, they would be pleasurable to, to instantiate that type of questioning. Uh, whether or not it's well received, I can't say. That's a great point. How many? That's really good. Andrew, yeah. I, I have one question for you. How many questions is too much for you? <laughs> like twenty questions. 20, okay, twenty. Get is it bigger than a bread box? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have bread boxes anymore. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, too, I think that it, it, I wouldn't like a question. No questions. But I also because mm-hmm. I would also like to be able to just say I don't like that. Right. You know what I mean. Without it being asked if I like it or not, is, is it is it, that's just me. If someone makes a move, is th- is that a question um, or no? <laughs> yeah, it ha- the move has to have like a certain tonal upspeak to yeah. it, so that it like it curves just you, just yeah. yeah. When, whenever I first touch someone's shoulder, I, I draw a question mark on on you know. Like. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the placeholder for the enigmatic signifier. Yeah. It's just a question mark on the box like, right there. You're like you never asked me. I, you didn't feel the question mark. It's like in... <laughs> It's like I thought you were drawing a, a, a C. Yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I I stand uh ashamed and, and corrected by all of you is that oh <laughs> but you'll get off on the shame yeah, later yeah. I, yeah. I don't know <laughs> Maybe. right now <laughs> where are we later. wait where are we in the discourse i can't i feel like i've lost sight of the entire okay the we, we were just talking well, we were t- we, jack jack let us and then i yeah I, we then, were jack yeah we were talking about the spontaneity of oh. of passionate love making and and yes. how you want to you want to be present, isn't that right, Jake? <laughs> do, do you want? I want to I want to piggyback on what Jack was saying earlier uh, about the atomization of society in terms of like, you know, we have to really consider right, like the whole infrastructure of some of a place like Twitter, and how like that creates a certain desire for likes and mutual recognition and so on and so forth. But it's also like very dangerous groupthink because the whole idea of the tweeter, right, is that like there is potentially a main character of the day or the villain of the day that like one person's opinion can become so radically separated from the groupthink that like all drive and energy is now marshaled toward annihilating that main character who dares to have 
a, a ridiculous opinion. And there's a complete sense of like a, an attempt to like rectify, like to make it straight again, to make the group cohesive. Uh, you know, like I, I and I had like the the in recent days, one of the main characters was a woman who who did say like this might be an unpopular opinion, but like. I find it completely distasteful when I'm watching two characters in a TV show have sex because I haven't given my consent or what she say exactly. Like it's, it's wrong to imagine to, to be a voyeur looking at these characters fucking because (laughs) they are in some sense, she was completely blurring the line between fiction and reality in this like very nauseating way. And you just wanted to be like, shut up. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, they're not real people. Like, these are not real people. But she for her, like it was something about this. And so I'm I'm thinking about in in terms of what Jake's saying back on Twitter, right? Like the this structure is so completely like against life. Right. Like we call these people chronically online or terminally online as like a really like that signifier is like being toward death. Right. Like you will live and die online. And if you even lived at all. And so I, I, I think that it seems like a very unsexy proposition. Right. Like the chronically or terminally online person is is is, of course, erotophobic because they're moving completely away from Eros itself. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Andrew, I I just reread the the one you're talking about, and and I remembered something that I think is really interesting to talk about here, Um, Mm because it says, nothing more awkward than feeling like you walked into a room of people having sex. This is, I hate nudity in TV shows. It never propels Mm -hmm. the story forward, and it's uncomfortable whether you're with your parents, boyfriends, or friends. Okay. Um, I want to... There's a fantasy there. There's a fucking fantasy that is just... Dropped by negation. Yeah, I think we on. should look at this. It never propels the story forward. Um, mm. As the, like the heart of the moralism that, that's, that's taking place here. Because I don't know. I'm even thinking and like, I, I wish I had reopened it. But I, I remember like in Laura Mulvey's um, famous essay, you know, about the phallic gaze in cinema. Uh, she, she talks about how like the moments of sex kind of, you know, have this way of s- sort of e- extending out beyond the, 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 the temporal linearity of the narrative. Uh, like, I think she talks about montage in that moment as well. And, you know, as I'm remembering it too, it, it's, it, there's something affirmative <laughs> about the sexiness of this moment that breaks from the narrative. So it, it would seem to me that this, kind of like moral call that like all we're doing when we're watching like TV or movies is like staying in the narrative. (laughs) Like that, that is a really like heightened desexualized fantasy. (laughs) Like um, that, you know, like even when the narrative's going on, I think we all know that you can sexualize the narrative, like <laughs> you, you can ignore the narrative. <laughs> um, so this, I don't know. I feel like there's so much to say here because also even like the way we're talking about like these discourses that like stay on track, <laughs> you know, and that keep everyone mm. in the same like um, mold of, of thought and vocabulary. Somehow that feels like this fantasy of this tightly wound narrative 
that that pre- pre- presents a space that has no excess, you know, no temporal risk. Um, I almost seemed like this metronome. Like it's like uh, the, yeah. the metronome is supposed to perfectly beat at the, at this pace over and over again. And somehow sex gets in the way of that. You know, makes me exceed it. Makes me want something else. I personally find narratives and plots like the the least interesting element. I, I, I just aesthetically <laughs> very against this notion that we watch TV shows for the narrative, you know, like. <laughs> it sounds, I, the way that you talked about it, it makes me think of a kind of disavowal of the symbolic order, right? Like just com- like consciously trying to just step outside of that, keep just within the, you know, the metonymy of the, the, the metonym- metonymical structure of language and completely disavow anything that has any kind of potential for creating that new meaning, you know, that would change the entire structure of that uh, discourse, right? That Those are the moments. I mean, that's what the moments of sex uh, do in plot structures, right? They change the register. Mm-hmm. Why, so if we're, why would that be like a symbolic or a moment of the symbolic order? Um, I, I, the only reason I say that is because when I think of the symbolic order, I, I oftentimes also think about like a controlling, sentimental, moralistic narrative that binds us all together. In that sense, I like it, it, sex is, as an interruption would in some sense, like I, I'm, I'm just wondering, I, I see the symbolic order as being part of it here, but it's. It doesn't, yeah. I mean, doesn't the structure of like a metaphor, for example, doesn't that present exactly, it highlights that interruption, right? It is that interruption. That's what creates the, ex, like the new meaning that would create, that's what opens up a space for, for, for new, for the creation of new meaning. It's that interruption. So that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that the way that you described it really sounded yeah. to me like a kind of trying to not engage with that at all and like really disavow that, that that dimension disavow the fact that that we exist within a symbolic order yeah exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, it, that that despite you know whether or not we want to be confronted with sexuality we're always confronted with sexuality even when we're just having a conversation right even when we're not explicitly in a sexual situation that's the lacan right. i'm talking to you right now i'm fucking yeah. we're fucking that's i think <laughs> <laughs> so this He's really like is <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's very much the right the structure of perversity is disavowal right so like it, right it's, exactly yeah, exa- exactly mm-hmm. and to come back to my earlier point like that's a, that is the point of um the the extreme almost violence of 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 demanding a space that doesn't have it right exactly yeah damn oh that's this is great i i i really would love to read your work elisa now i'm i'm simping <laughs> but not to sleep with you i'm uh, i'm <laughs> doth protest too much okay um oh, <laughs> um I, I think that it would be nice to talk a little bit more about the violent register of th- this moralism. 
um, if, if we could get into it a little bit more. Um, but I guess I wanted to talk about what I've been calling like TikTok misandrism, uh, which is just this, I think, a, a return to a kind of Andrea Dworkin, like radical feminist, like just notion that, you know, the sex is is not safe, that sex is always violent, and that specifically it's a gendered distinction where it's it's not safe for women. Here it's, it's slightly personal, but I'll just say that I'm imagining this. But I mean, it, it creates a scenario, I believe, where the the male, you know, is desired, but the, the desire for the male is, is deeply woven into a, a moral judgment about the male at, at the very same time. Um, and the, the male then has to occupy a space of, of a rapist to, to, to move forward with heteronormative sex. And I think at that point, well, yeah, then you have to, you know, then you have to ask about your relation to, to being moralized in that way. Um, also of being identified or projected in that way. And it, and yeah, it's, it's, it, and it's something that I think does have this like kind of group think sort of power where, you know, the reason I call it TikTok misandrism is because people will post like 20 to 30 second, like diatribes about like, you know, rape culture and how everything is violent and everything is, is, you know, a non-consensual invasion of, of, of the female. And as a result of those 30 seconds, it, 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 it allows, I think people to take on a kind of moralism um, and I think, you know, Elisa talks about this really well. Hopefully she can talk about it. But it's also this sense of victimhood where there's a complete um, denial that there's any desire. Like the woman has any of their own desire um, in, in that space. Um, and so mm -hmm. I, I, I want to just like read and then maybe, Elisa, you can respond. But I want to just read something from Andrea Dworkin so we can hear a little bit of like the tone of, of some of this kind of like absolute like violence that is sex. And this is, this is from her book intercourse. Uh, uh, so let's just see. I, 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 this is a random page. I feel like if I turned to any page, I would find something similar. So for women being sexually possessed by men is more pedestrian. Women have been chattels to men as wives, as prostitutes, as sexual and reproductive servants being owned and being fucked are or have been virtually synonymous experiences in the lives of women. He owns you, he fucks you. The fucking conveys the quality of the ownership. He owns you inside out. The fucking conveys the passion of his dominance. It requires access to every hidden inch. He can own everything around you and everything on you and everything you are capable of doing as a worker or server or ornament. But getting inside you and owning your insides is possession deeper, more intimate than any other kind of ownership. Intimate, raw, total, the experience of sexual possession for women is real and literal without any magical or mystical dimension to it. Getting fucked and being owned are inseparably the same. Together, being one and the same, they are sex for women under male dominance as a social system. Can I respond please, to that real please. quick? Yeah. Um, so there's two things I want to say. The first thing is that this position this moralizing position that sort of there there is a demand of from women for men to to embody like or to to be positioned in of being the rapist um 
is a, clearly uh, the structure of the fantasy, of course. But at the same time, I also want to say that um, the what it sounds like to me, at least just from what you're saying, Jake, the feeling that you don't want to embody that position is also has has to be analyzed, right? Because it is extraordinarily normal for a neurotic to embody that position. Yeah. Like we're, we're constantly the transgressors. That is what sex is, right? It's, it is transgression. It is, or at least flirting with the idea of what transgression is and being able to occupy that position, both for women and for men or for whatever sexual partner is of your choice, mm. right? Um, that, so, so, I mean, I think here we're just seeing this nuanced sort of position for, for both parties, right? I, I have a way to maybe think about that, what your question to me, um, and maybe make it like more general, but I'm, I'm happy to think about it like personally, like why, why I don't want to say, okay, you imagine man as a rapist, I will play that role and, and get you off on that. Like, um, I think that the way that I experienced the moralizing discourse, I mean, it's also a relationship of love. <laughs> um, I, I experienced the moralizing discourse as being something that extended beyond the sex act in a way where I felt like if I played that role in the bedroom, I would have to sacrifice some of my dignity outside of it. If, if mm -hmm. um, I think that's how I experienced it. Uh, yeah, I could, I could see that. I'm yeah, sorry if I, yeah, I'm interrupting yeah. you. I, I could see that and I could see how, yes, from the moralizing yeah. perspective, what, what is being called for is a rapist. It's not just a fantasy of playing a rapist. Right. Um, which is which is in itself ex ex like an extraordinary demand that is impossible to fulfill. I would say. Um, this is, okay. No, now I'm thinking now. To actually fulfill it, as this discourse seemed, or this discussion seemed to be, you know, um, told told to me, or asked of me, um, it felt like this is the simplest thing. I had to feel guilty for what I was doing. That that's how it felt to me. Not only do I need to do this, I need to feel guilty for doing this. Yeah. Again, yeah. it seems like an impossible demand, yeah. right? Because how could you do yeah. it and then feel guilty yeah. about it? <laughs> yeah. That I think that's that's how I experienced it. Um, so so I want to take a, take yeah. this conversation a step further by saying, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you guys a claim that is in my dissertation that I haven't really told to the world. So here it is. It does seem to me like this discourse really does create its own object. This is something that I've talked to you, Jake, yeah, about before. Yeah. Um, but the demand for that position is the demand to um, be transgressed upon. <laughs> it's what it is, right? And so it seems like it's a kind of a chicken and the egg scenario, right? Is, is, the, is the discourse of rape a, re a result of rape or is the discourse of rape demanding for there to be the thing to talk about rape itself you see what i'm saying well this relates i think a little because we were talking about this earlier it relates to the fact that even if we would imagine that you know this radical feminist tiktok misandrist stance would encourage lots of women to never have sex with men let's just imagine that for a second but now they're watching 
television shows that show them sex. <laughs> so now they're transgressed on that level, you know, like, so, right. you know, at, at, at any level, like if they get further and further into a bubble and, 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 and wrap themselves in, in, you know, closer and closer to, I don't know, for some reason, it, it seems like their childhood bedroom, which of course is not a safe space at all. Um, but if they can get closer and closer to like being completely isolated, they're always going to find something new that is transgressing them, that's invading them. And that's what you, is, I mean, is that what you're saying? Like that it, it creates its own object? Is that? Well, of course. And at that level, yes. Yeah. But I actually mean it a little bit more seriously than yeah. that. I think that it creates a position where a partner that is being called upon to act in this way can, will have to find a way to act in this way. And so what I've seen uh, in my research is that there's a new sort of um, sexual interaction that is trying to answer this demand, that is trying to create a, a scenario in which there is a, a, the closest thing to a sexless sex as possible in reality, right? Like a, a sexual interaction from which the sex has been abstracted. Okay, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm trying to describe a new um, sort of structure to a, uh, a, a, a scenario of rape that ends up being extremely violent without being violent at all. I'll bring in an example. Have you guys ever uh, seen or been exposed to this kind of pornography called free use pornography? Free use, no? Okay. <laughs> so free use, it, the concept is that uh, there's some sort of uh, gimmick, like a magic spell or like a magic remote, like technology, like remote control that will pause the woman, uh, that the man can control either the woman or that the woman can like, you know, make a spell uh, so that the man is completely um, sort of absent. He's still there. We'll, we'll start with that one. The man is um, still present in the, in the shoot, in the scene, but the women can't hear him and they can't see him, okay? And so now the man is free to have sex with them, but they have no idea, or the, the idea is that they have no, the fantasy is that they have no notion that that is happening. So they'll be talking to each other, they're having a conversation, they're doing homework, maybe eating breakfast, and this guy is like fucking them. Can you say that word here? I don't know. Um, we, we just have to check a box now. Uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Demonetized. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, so you see, this is what I mean by sexless sex, right? It's creating a, a circumstance in which there is a semblance of sex without there being the actual sort of recognition that there is sex at all on any level. So my question here is who's actually getting off? Who is that? Like there is because the the without the woman recognizing that there is any kind of sexual interaction happening, it's it makes for an extremely awkward viewing, right? It's just this guy, and like all you hear is like smacking sounds. That's it. You know, it's just extremely like there. There is nothing like arousing about that. Yet it's an extremely um, popular form of porn these days. Can I? Can I? And can so, I ask you, Lisa? Mm -hmm. Because. I'm still thinking about what you're saying that it, this discourse creates its own object. Um, yes. And 
because um, maybe I'm missing the, the point here because I thought the relation of creating its own object had to do with constantly finding a way to be transgressed. But actually what you're saying is the object it, it creates is this new possibility of a sexless sex, that this is the object that this discourse creates. Is that? Yes, but, but the transgression is much worse. That my point is that that transgression is much worse than a transgression that is set up to be sort of transparent as a transgression. Do so you think this moralizing discourse about the transgressive nature of sex creates this new object, which is this fantasy of a sexless sex? And in doing that, because it's making believe it finally found a space where there's no transgression, the transgression is even more violent. Is, it, is that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, exactly. So the reason for me to bring up this, um, sorry, this um, um, example is because there, what I found is that there, there are people who will take this idea and then find a way to, I, I hesitate with the words here because it's, it's a very delicate scenario. Act it out you know, um, act it out in reality, create a, a, a situation in reality in which the sex has been abstracted from a sexual interaction. Can, can I ask you, how is, can you maybe draw the line a little bit for me here, which is like, how does the moralizing discourse influence or produce this type of pornography? maybe not even I think the pornography is obviously like the f fantasy the, the phantasmatic uh, response to this demand but it's the demand itself that creates the, the, the demand for this position that's what I mean so this I moralizing discourse creates the demand for that position to be embodied but, but so what is so, what so, does that moralizing discourse think about those like that type of porn are they pr proud oh, of them or <laughs> No, I mean absolutely not. Yeah. I mean I think that okay. the, the the this is just the solution to the demand. And it it, it is still not uh, accepted as a as a solution by the moralizing discourse, but it is the only solution that I've seen so far that's sort of like somewhat been responding to that demand. Can you say a little bit more about the sex of sex cuz correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a kind of like Zizekian like uh coffee without caffeine like right like, right, right, like right. It, yeah exactly i mean it's just taking yeah. out the thing from it, it's trying to experience the thing without the thing that, <laughs> that it's essence brings that, the, the, yeah the that essence of what it is yeah. sort of pleasure yeah. for what it yeah. is exactly okay. yeah exactly yeah. but in but in the sphere of sex what happens is that it's not the jouissance that gets removed from the object or from the experience it's the desire that gets removed from the experience. That's where the violence comes in, right? The Jewish sons is like, the, the, okay, so let me put it in a different, in a, in different terms. The moralizing argument is a demand for that Jewish sons. It is not, it, it is a, it, it, an attempt at the solution of desire, right? It's a disavowal of desire. So that's why the position to, is impossible to embody, to inhabit. That's why, like, the structure of that demand, as you were saying earlier, Jake, is impossible. Yeah. You, can't, you can't fulfill it. You can't be a rapist and then feel guilty about being a rapist. 
right? Like it's impossible. What is it that's that's uh, produced there? The jouissance of kind of being like I told you so. You can't have it this way and you can't have it this other way either. And in this sense, the way you're reading the jouissance, which is, I mean, just to give a little bit of, of a definition for, for people who haven't heard it before or haven't heard us talk about it. I mean, it, it is this French word for, for enjoyment, satisfaction. Lacan uses it as this kind of impossibility. You know, we're, we're always pursuing our, our desire, our drives and jouissance is in some ways what we're aiming for, but always out of reach and always in excess. Um, and are you saying in this sense that like the jouissance, because of the way that desire is disavowed, the jouissance kind of like takes its revenge? Is, is there, is there? So I'm using jouissance here as a defense against desire. Okay. A complete, complete defense. But in, in a way here that I think is much worse than I, than I've seen uh, in any analysis of, of a prior, uh, you know, instantiation of the same sort of structure. Mainly, like the, um, I don't know, the, the complaint of rape, right? From from let's say the, the beginning of Freud, right to now. The, the the way that this discourse works today is a almost foolproof, uh, complete. Um, utilization of Jewish sons in, in a way to, in, to ward off desire. And so it, crea- it creates that insulation, the insulation that you were talking about earlier, where um, it's <laughs> unconsciously always, att- like always calling that, that transgression, but at the same time always um, undercutting it. And always like creating a situation in which it's impossible to fulfill, impossible to to confront, impossible to. It's always guarded against. I find it very interesting, but I one of the the part that I have a hard time conceptualizing is how one can harness jouissance in that way. Like jouissance seems like something unharnessable. Uh, so that's okay. Yeah. Well, this is where um, the position of victimization comes okay. in. Right. When you, um, jouissance, the way that I read it ex- is expressed in, in suffering. Suffering is jouissance. So the position of victimization enjoys their position of victimization. And the discourse, what it does, the rape discourse, what it does is that it, it um, maintains the position of victimization forever I, as a premise of the discourse itself. Okay. I, now I get it too. And this help, helps me with. The revenge, because it it actually makes it closer to the what would Jesus do, like moralization here, because it's not that like the jouissance takes revenge. It's actually like this moralizing discourse is harnessing jouissance to take revenge on the world. I mean, (laughs) 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 Um, I feel like there's some Nietzschean like statement about... um, Maybe we it, it can connect to this, but he talks about like an infertile woman, like like it's like hell hath no fury, like the infertile woman, like she will like take over the whole world with her revenge. Um, mm. I, th- I think is something that he says. It's in it's in Ece Homo, um, and oh my, <laughs> <laughs> watch out. <laughs> Oh, I love this. Oh, my goodness. So, of course, I'm thinking about, right, the difference between revenge and retaliation, 
where like that that occasion so it's, so it's like in the Nietzschean view right like the Jewish people cannot strike out against the Romans who have been oppressing them so they retaliate not through like an immediate like oh you slap me so I slap you back but rather right like this long game psychological warfare that happens from the inability to slap back against one's aggressor so that way like yes like revenge like using the jouissance then as a revenge against the desire for like a, a certain idea of sexual difference, certain ideas of like gender roles, gender norms, so on and so forth. That then like they, they can take long, like a revenge as a dish best served colds. Uh, and yeah. And also this is, I mean, yeah. we're, we're repeating, but I, I feel like it's, it's not, it's, it's so dialectical that it needs to be repeated again and again, but like the, uh, impossibility of this position <laughs> and and like is because the only way for that jouissance to be there <laughs> to be harnessed is for that desire to remain even though it's yes. taking revenge and 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 speaking out of one side of the mouth like this this desire needs to disappear it, it's, it's also with the other hand like somewhat pulling it back <laughs> cradling it close so that it remains there because it needs to remain there because otherwise there's no possibility for the suffering. <laughs> the suffering comes from this desire that's being rejected. Um, mm -hmm. But it exactly. still needs to be named and, 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 and exist for the jouissance to feel this pain. Like, yeah. So what, so, um, so what do we do? Alicia, what, how do we, how do we, how do we get out of this? Uh, it's quagmire. <laughs> um, my my advice is actually I'm going to take this from uh, Alinka Supancic yeah. because she yeah. had a great response to this to, to a question from uh, the LA Review of Books interview that she did when What Is Sex was coming out, and somebody asked her, "What do you think of the Me Too movement? What do you think of uh, you know the, the, the discourse that's coming out of the Me Too movement?" And she just very succinctly said, the point is to, is to um, reject the position of victimization at every level. And that is my point. That is my position. I mean, and the way that we do that is by um, recognizing the, sh the, 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 the shape of your desire <laughs> and how that's really creating this, uh, this situation. Can I ask like a like a dumb woke question for you? Yeah. Sure. If someone is like criminally violated, you want to tell them not to feel like they're a victim? Is that Okay, that's a really good yeah. question actually. It's not a dumb woke okay. question at all. Um the end of my in, at the end of my dissertation I really deal with the the the, the question of what what are we really responsible for? Uh, let's say victims of rape. What are we really responsible for? Are we just going to assume the entire situation onto our shoulders and then sort of, in a way, disavow any kind of responsibility that a perpetrator may have, right? The answer is obviously no. But you you can only take responsibility for your desire and your symptom and your jouissance, right? That's it. You can't, what you can't do is take responsibility for somebody else's symptom for somebody else's jouissance, for somebody else's desire. You can't, you can't take responsibility for that. And so whatever 
a perpetrator does is a, a, a reaction to their symptom, to their, uh, you know, structure. But what you can do as a, as a victim of, or, 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 I mean, let me change that word too, right? I mean, that was a, that was a great slip. But um, I, in the dissertation, I call it like the subject of rape, right? Is is to confront that suffering in your own, like in your in your own structure. Why is your suffering so so difficult? And that is something that you can, um, you you have the possibility to really face that question for yourself in order to reject the position of victimization, in order to sort of, in a way, free yourself from that suffering. So victimization here would be almost something like refusing to ask questions of your own subjectivity. It, it would it would be like... Yes, no, exactly. No. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. More psychoanalysis for us all, it seems <laughs> like the solution could be, right? We all need analysts to, to work with this on... <laughs> Right. I mean, that, that's the beautiful gesture, right, of like of, of especially Lacanian analysis where like the hysteric so positioned needs to stop like, you know, uh, the or at least pause temporarily the force of her complaint against others in order to like ask a different set of questions because the complaint against others, it's like, you can't control other people. You cannot like control what other people do and say and how they react to you. Like, so like redirected to a different line of, of inquiry about the self and, and to make yourself a subject in, in this particular way. I, I, yes, absolutely. That's great. Alicia. Yeah. Which is actually, if, if I may just sort of link this back to the conversation we're having about sexless sex, that is what makes uh, the dimension of violence so violent for that kind of situation for the, the person who has sort of, quote unquote, been transgressed against, right? Like you can imagine a situation where a young man may uh, sort of, I don't know, let's say a great example of sexless sex is um, putting a date rape drug in somebody's drink, right? And so you're really abstracting the, se- the, the position that the other can embody in that sexual situation, right? But what happens is that that, that, that that person who's being transgressed upon doesn't even have a memory of being transgressed upon. There is no position of subjectivity there. And that's what makes it so violent. It's almost like the, the, the inherent sort of trauma that should go along with this kind of violent situation doesn't even have a place there, right? And so that's what I mean by, I mean, that is another aspect of this extraordinary violence that, that comes along with a sexless sex. It, 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 under that definition, I mean, is is would you say that all pornography has somewhat the structure of the sexless sex in the sense that you are engaging sexually with another that is just not there? Who is engaging with another that's not there? Well, okay, like if someone like roofies someone, right? Like then they have sex with this person without that person being there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's no subject there. So if you're jerking off to someone... You mean the viewer? viewer, Yeah, so the viewer Mm -hmm. is having a kind of sexless sex with this person because there is no other there to... That's really interesting because I think the question of masturbation really hasn't been looked at enough. Um, what is it, what is masturbation in a psychoanalytic, you know, lens? 
um, who who is where does the ar- arousal come in, in in masturbation in order for there to be masturbation? Who is the transgression being transgressed against? Like, where is the sex in masturbation? And so, like, I haven't really sort of you know finalized my my considerations on this matter, but it does seem to me like yeah, it could be an instance of sexless sex. Like, I think it could be, I'm not even sure that masturbation is sex to begin with. Like, I'm not, I don't know. Again, like, I'm not, I'm not 100% committed to this, but yeah. initially it seems to me to have that aspect to it. That Listen, sense. I like this because apparently the obsessive, it, it only has a masturbatory relation uh, to, to, to the other or the object. And so if, if masturbation isn't sex, the, the obsessive is never having sex. Um, yeah, actually, yeah. And that, that goes really well with... I, I, I mean, I identify. <laughs> you know, what Lacan says in, in 7 or 10, of, uh, you know, what the, what the obsessive needs to do is to, to realize that they don't enjoy. <laughs> like, that is the end of analysis for an obsessive. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not actually having yeah. sex. No. And I'm not sure that that is the answer to not have sex, but the realization that that is what is happening, I think, is what Lacan would point to. Right, right, right. right. Oh, so the, the obsessive won't learn to enjoy sex. They just will learn that they don't enjoy sex. That's... Yes, yes. That's, okay. That's the... That's my horizon, my analytic horizon. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> but I think there, there can I can't be a wait. certain <laughs> there can be a certain sense of relief from that. I think yeah. you know, like a way in yeah. which what you may be suffering from, which maybe why am I not enjoying this, can go away. And yeah. like instead of, and, and I'm not sure that I think that that would bleed into a sort of. Um, sort of passive enjoyment in a, in a way like you know instead of struggling against that feeling of not enjoyment yeah. just enjoying not enjoying i guess that that, that might right. be like the solution <laughs> here. Right, yeah. <laughs> right and then hopefully maybe the 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 hysterics question will come to the fore and you'll start to ask you know like well am i a man or a woman am i this or that and what do i desire what does the other desire of me so. mm-hmm yeah. We have lots of solutions for people today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> God. Um, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I, I think unless anyone wants to go, I think this was like really, really fasc- fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Alicia, thank you so much. Thank you so yeah. much. Uh, oh like, my goodness. So Yay. interesting. Thank you for having me. I really thing. appreciate it. This that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm settled. I'm, um, I, I love you all. And um, and our one listener, and um, yeah, we'll we'll be back in two weeks with with another podcast. So take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.